left of that reading. I'm not sure how thankful you are for the reading. That was, it's a tough passage, isn't it? Lots of stuff in here that we'll have to leave and not cover today, but uh, it is the word of the Lord and we are grateful. So let's pray together. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Amen. Hardly a week goes by when we don't hear someone say some version of the phrase, he's such a good guy, or she's such a nice person. What do we mean when we say that? What popped into your head when I said that? I imagine it means different things to different people. Uh, maybe we think it means that they're easy to talk to. Uh, they'll do certain things to help you out. Maybe we think that's the sort of person who will buy you lunch. On and on. We might even go further than that. We might think of good in the moral or virtuous sense that this person is a truth teller, basically. <clears throat> they care about others. They have empathy. They don't cheat unless it's on their taxes and, you know, government doesn't deserve it anyway, they say. What would you include in that list? That when everything is added up on the list, that's what equals a good person. I recently watched a TV series. I'm not going to tell you what it is because you'll think I'm endorsing it. I'm not endorsing it. If you figure it out and you watch it, please don't be ashamed of me, okay? It does not qualify as an endorsement. Um, it's a dark comedy, although comedy, I don't know, not much of it. It's about an ex-Marine who becomes an assassin in order to make a living. He eased his conscience by telling himself that everyone he was executing was truly a bad person. And interestingly, even as he was executing his job and those people, he still considered him ba himself basically to be a good person. This was primarily based on the fact that he had done some truly heroic things in life, at least one heroic thing, and they kept going, flashing back to this the, the directors, producers kept going back to this one event to remind us about what a good guy he is and how conflicted he was in his job. So he wanted to be this hero exemplified in this act and he didn't want to do what he was doing. So because he felt trapped in it and couldn't get out, he just thought he viewed himself as indeed a good person. Now, of course, as the series went on, things began to unravel, as they always do for assassins. Of course, you know that. And he got more and more caught up in his own web of deceit and violence. At one point in the show, a person from his past, interestingly, who's part of law enforcement, discovers his secrets and confronts him about it. But instead of bringing justice, an amazing thing happens. He tells him, hey, you're really a good guy. So stop all this killing starting today. And he walked away. 
Here's the counterintuitive nature of the show. The viewer believes exactly what that guy said. We like this Marine turned assassin. We see his heart, we feel his pain, and we're torn. We're torn about his behavior and our own affection for him. Because we really do believe that deep down, he is a good guy, in spite of all of these horrible things that he's done. And it just serves to highlight this powerful, almost supernatural tension that humans feel about our own humanity. On the one hand, we want to believe that our bodily, tangible actions in the real world, all of that stuff within space and time, do not define us. It's not who I am. I did it, I said it, it's not who I am. We want to believe that for the most part, they're superfluous to who we are, to our core being, at least when it comes to our mistakes and our most grievous actions. On the other hand, we insist on justice for those in our society who have behaved foolishly or in a criminal fashion. You notice that? You notice how passionate we are about that? But by doing that, we are acknowledging that at some level, our actions in the real world do, in fact, reflect our being. We don't pat these people on the back and say, hey, down deep, you're a really good guy. So see if you can tidy up your life. No. We call for justice. We label them criminals, flawed, poor character, sometimes even evil. On this TV show, the assassin, for all of his abhorrent violence, is lovable and loved. But when we hear a politician apologizing and using the phrase, this is not who I am, what do we do? We roll our collective eyes and we think, of course it is. Why else did you do it? Or say it. Do you sense the problem? Do you feel the tension? Who really is a good person? I believe that the Saul-David contrast in Samuel exemplifies this tension and is the paradigm for understanding the gospel and what it means to be truly good. I also believe that for the most part, the church has overlooked this paradigm because we tend to overlook the Old Testament leaving us to struggle, not only with our own hearts, but especially in our day and age, what it means to be a godly leader. And there's no lack of discussion around that at this cultural moment, right? The author is clearly setting up a contrast between Saul and David. Saul is an utter failure. David is the quintessential king, not just any king the paradigmatic king, the archetype of what it means to lead and also what it means to faithfully follow God. Interestingly, many years later, Jesus would take on his name, son of David. And the apostles even would preach the gospel in terms of Jesus Christ, son of David. 
The gospel writers are at pains to establish Jesus' lineage as that reaching back to David. Does that surprise you? Some of you know what David did. The atrocities that David committed, that the apostles would use that name to proclaim the lordship of Jesus. I mean, maybe there's somebody else with a slightly better reputation we could draw on that would help our message become a bit more credible. Elijah, maybe. I mean, he didn't even have to face death. He was such a good dude. Moses. But it was David. There's no mistaking it in Samuel. Saul is the arch heretic and David is the hero. This is especially perplexing when you measure what Saul did versus what David did. And chapter 15 is the pinnacle of Saul's sins against God. The two previous sins are found first in chapter 13, where Saul's preparing for battle against the Philistines at Michmash. And he's been told to wait for Samuel to come and conduct the sacrifice. Some of you remember this story. He waits. He does. He waits for seven days. Can you imagine sitting there staring at your enemy who vastly outnumbers you and you wait for seven days for Samuel to come and sacrifice so that you can receive God's blessing and hear the word of the Lord. So he waits. He waits for seven days. That's pretty patient. He gets to seven days and he says, everybody is trembling. I'm the leader, so I'll just sacrifice. So he conducts the sacrifice. And wouldn't you know it, just as he's finishing the sacrifice, the text says, Samuel shows up, that rascal. And he is none too pleased. And he pronounces judgment on Saul and his kingship right there. He waited seven days. Just a little bit of impatience. It's not a bad thing. That's his first big sin. Second sin, chapter 14. It's a long story. I won't tell you all of it. Fall makes, uh, Saul makes a foolish oath and almost got his son killed and almost cost Israel a big battle. They were not defeated, as it turns out, in spite of his mistake. And in spite of God's silence when they inquired of him. So chapter 14 really came down to some poor leadership. Poor decisions in the moment. At least that's the way it seems. And now chapter 15. So eloquently read in our hearing. He was commanded to enact the ban on the Amalekites. It's a technical term. Harem uh, in the Old Testament and in the ancient world where it was complete annihilation. I will refrain from a discussion on this this morning, although we could and probably should talk about it. But I'll pass over it for now. Complete destruction. And Saul does it. Almost. He came really close. And because of the almost, God rips the kingdom from him and rejects him and his entire family line. Even Jonathan, who's just been presented to us in chapter 14 as a hero. 
The contrast of Jonathan in chapter 14 to Saul is very interesting because the writer is clearly saying the son here is better than the father, which has not been the case up to this point in Samuel. All the sons were disappointments. Jonathan is not, so we expect us to say, Jonathan's the king. He's the real king. And in chapter 15, the whole kingship is stripped from Saul's line. It's that egregious of a sin. Now, all this seems a bit harsh to me, don't you think? One of the cornerstone doctrines of our judicial system is that the punishment should fit the crime. We don't incarcerate someone for life who's guilty of jaywalking. And jaywalking is still a violation of the law, I think, in case you're wondering. Sounds to me when I read chapter 15 like God flipped out on Saul just for a bit of jaywalking. He pretty much obeyed. His transgressions feel only slight to us. Saul and the people, the text tells us, he wasn't alone in this, in his culpability. The people pushed for this too. They made the decision that didn't seem too unreasonable at the time. Why destroy everything? Why not keep the good bits, all that were good? Why not plunder the enemy? I mean, God had allowed that to do, or Israel to do that before. It wasn't unusual to hear God do that. Remember, they plundered the Egyptians as they were leaving Egypt. They plundered other nations in Canaan on the conquest. Saul greeted Samuel with the news of his success, and he was only slightly deceitful at that meeting. Hey, yeah, I did it. But then he quickly shifted the blame through his soldiers under the bus. Did you hear that when Samuel confronted him? All right. So that's not the best thing to do. It's not great to lie to Samuel. He treated Saul like his own son. Samuel was crushed by Saul's failures. The text tells us he was grieved for Saul. But surely Samuel and Yahweh, for that matter, are overreacting. Saul was pretty much obedient, mostly honest, and eventually, after only a little bit of blame shifting and self-justifying, said he was sorry. No harm, no foul. Let's move on with this whole conquering our enemies business. Now, this is the way we naturally think about life. The good person is the one whose actions, when put on a scale, tip at least slightly to the good over over the bad. And the bats can't be too egregious, can't be too weighty, because the big sins, whatever those happen to be in the cultural moment of the day, those big sins will outweigh the virtues, and once you commit the big one, then you're likely not able to do enough to make up for it. Okay, So don't commit the big ones, but just make sure the good slightly outweighs the bad. And, crucially, if the good outweighs the bad then God is forced, he's obligated to cut us some slack. Look at the life I've lived. Look at how my good is outweighing the bad. You've got to bless me, Lord. I've been having my devotions every morning. You've got to bless me. I'm here every Sunday. God doesn't view it that way. How else can we possibly explain his rejection of Saul as the archenemy and his love for David? All right, just imagine for a moment 
that you are on a search committee at church. I'm sorry, that's not a pleasant image, is it? But you're on the search committee for the next pastor. And in front of you are two resumes, one from Saul, one from David. Who would get the job? Here's Saul. Um, I wasn't even looking for my first ministry appointment. It came to me. I was forced into it. I even tried to hide to get away. Um, but what do you do? Um, I was anointed by Samuel. You know Samuel. That's pretty impressive, right? Uh, I got anointed by him, the prophet. I have had some great defeats against the Philistines. Um, we were vastly outnumbered. I led our people through battle. Okay, that's good. That's good. Son follows in his footsteps. He's heroic. Apparently a good parent. He trained his son well. That's good. It matters. A couple of leadership failures. He was impatient, slightly impetuous, impetuous. And Saul has a tendency to be satisfied with 98% rather than 100%. All right. So far, so good. David. Mighty warrior. That's good. No qualms about killing people. Hmm. Multiple wives. Now that'll go over in the congregation. One of whom tends to get a bit sassy, if you know the story. Um, adultery and murder. Okay, David. Why'd you even put in for the job? Illegal census for purposes of self-aggrandizement. Son does not follow in his footsteps and instead tries to dethrone and kill him. Who are you hiring? We're all hiring Saul, aren't we? We're voting for Saul if he's running in the local election. That's because we're slaves to the view that as long as the good outweighs the bad, as long as the scale is tipped slightly in favor of the good, then that's what makes us a good person. It's the 51% rule. And we're slaves to the view that the godly leader is the one whose mistakes are low in number and small in degree. The one who toes the line. The one whose mistakes are essentially unseen is the one who's qualified and godly. But God doesn't see it that way. And the way we know the difference between Saul and David is how they respond when confronted with their sin. After an effort to justify himself and blame others, Saul said sorry, he did confess, and he did repent in a way. But David also confessed and repented from his sin after the prophet Nathan confronted him. And at other times. So if both repented, what's the deal? What we clearly glean from the text is that Saul's repentance was an effort to gain favor with Samuel and with Yahweh. And Samuel scorned Saul's claim that he kept some of the animals out of pure motivation to sacrifice them to God. Did you hear that? And we kept the good stuff so that we could worship God. And Samuel said, I'm not buying it. 
He said that Saul's heart was full of rebellion and that he and the people intentionally disobeyed Yahweh with hearts so full of sin that he compared it to witchcraft, which incidentally would be verified later on in Saul's life when he went to a witch to get strategic information. What was David's repentance like? Psalm 51, Psalm 32, very different. David wasn't looking to gain favor, to get off easy. David was broken hearted that his own heart was so corrupt and his actions were so wicked that he had broken the heart of God. Against you and you only have I sinned, David said, and committed this evil. And his repentance wasn't qualified in any way. David's repentance was one that longed for the joy of intimacy with God. Saul's repentance was to placate God and gain his favor, to make sure that his good was outweighing the mistakes so God would reward him. It's counterintuitive to us that the bad person could be the elder or pastor who's been in church ministry for 25 years without any public King David-like scandal. And the good person could be the one in prison for assaulting a child. We look on the outside. God looks on the heart. And God knew what he had in Saul was a king that wasn't really saying sorry when he said sorry. Have you ever met anybody like that? Has someone ever apologized to you and you walk away thinking, someone didn't feel right about that? You know why? They weren't sorry. They said the words. That was an action in space and time. But there was no heart. Those people, I'm sorry to say, are the wicked people in the world. The ones who can never from their heart genuinely say, it was me, I was wrong, forgive me. Do you remember Jesus' first sermon, the one he preached repeatedly when he began his ministry? It wasn't very long. What did he say? He said, repent. That's not a sermon in vogue these days, but I think that's only because we think repentance is a measure of our sin against your virtues. We think it's a way of saying we get exposed and the scales get tipped in the wrong directions. That's how we view repentance. And who wants to look at that? Who wants to put all their virtues and sins on a spreadsheet and put them on measure against one another? But that's not what Jesus was preaching. If we could grasp that repentance is about having a heart for God, if we could see the glory and the joy and the very hope of repentance, if we could grasp the inner peace of repentance, then we could see it as a doorway to eternal life. And why would we want anything else? Do you remember the second half of Jesus' first sermon? It wasn't just repent. It was repent. What? 
For the kingdom of heaven has arrived. Had it? Where? And what we discover in the New Testament is that the kingdom is more of a who than a where. True repentance, repentance with a heart for God, is the doorway to Christ. And Christ is the one who has been judged in our place. No longer is it an issue of tipping the scales and measuring the good against the bad. Repentance is entering into the joy of life with God. There is, therefore, just like we said earlier when we confessed our sins together, there is, therefore, now no condemnation, no measuring for those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll let Henry Nouwen have the final word. Here's what he says. Knowing Jesus, reading his words, and praying create an increasing clarity about evil and good, sin and grace, Satan and God. This clarity calls me to choose the way to the light fearlessly and straightforwardly. The more I come to know Jesus, he says, the more I also realize how many such choices have to be made and how often. They involve so much more than my public acts. They touch the deepest recesses of the heart, where my most private thoughts and fantasies are hidden. Reflecting on my life, I saw how opaque it has been. I often did one thing while saying another, said one thing while thinking another, thought one thing while feeling another, I found myself, I found many examples in which I had even lied to myself. Do you ever feel that way? How to go, now one says, from this opaqueness to transparency. A transparent life is a life without moral ambiguities in which heart, mind, and gut are united in choosing the light. I am discovering the importance of naming the darkness in me by no longer calling the darkness anything else but darkness. The temptation to keep using it for my own selfish purposes gradually becomes less. A hard task is given to me to call the darkness darkness, evil evil, and the demon demon. By remaining vague, I can avoid commitment and I can drift along in the mainstream of our society. But Jesus does not allow me to stay there. He requires a clear choice for truth, light, and life. And here's the key. When I recognize my countless inner compromises, I may, I may feel guilty and ashamed at first, but when this leads to repentance and a contrite heart, I will soon discover the immense love of God who came to lead me out of the darkness into the light and who wants to make me into a transparent witness of his love. End quote. The good person is the one not the one who's flawless, 
not the one who avoids all the sins and mistakes, necessarily. The good person is the one whose heart beats for God and loves nothing more than to rest in the love of God, transparently, honestly, full of repentance. And that is the doorway to life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.